1 to 9 of chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning history. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour in the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Okay. So here's what the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him says. You can trust God to be able to do what he says he'll do. Look at what he does. Look at his creative power. Look at what if you look at what God's track record is like, you see he's capable of doing anything he sets his mind to. What's he going to do with Jerusalem? God's people. Well, what does he make Jerusalem into in verse 2? Yes, I think this is one of the passages that's speaking of God's cup of wrath. That's a concept uh, especially developed in passages like Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51. But it's like, if you imagine God's wrath as, as some evil, poisonous potion that you, you made up and you gave to somebody and they drink it and they start staggering and vomiting and and falling and passing out and, and all that. That's the idea of this cup of reeling. God makes his people into this cup of wrath that, that those nations that come against them, you know, you've got these nations that are gathering against God's people and they're trying to grab her and drink her down. And as they drink her down, they start you know, puking and, and just uh, fainting. And, and they're, they're the ones that end up being overcome. Those who attack, those who attack Jerusalem end up being uh, incapacitated like a drunk. In that day, he says, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone. And, and the people who try to lift that stone, see, they were trying to pick up Jerusalem with a stone to throw it out. But this stone, imagine a stone that has these really sharp, jagged edges. And it's really heavy. So as you pick up that stone, what's it going to happen to your hands? It's going to get lacerated. 
Now, it would be interesting if this was like you get a hernia or something. But I think from the word, it's more like the idea of lacerating. So like, like it cuts up their hands when they try to pick it up. You know, everybody who tries to come against God's people, they end up getting hurt. God strikes every horse with madness, bewilderment, bewilderment, and the rider with madness, and every horse of the peoples with blindness. In other words, everybody who tries to attack God's people, he just confuses them, he incapacitates them, he brings them down. And that day he makes the clans of Judah like a fire pot, a flaming torch, to burn everything up. So, you know, this focuses on, you know, what God does to his people to protect them and to bless them. Now, clearly we've switched gears again, haven't we? Chapter 11 was the unfaithful that God was going to punish. Now we're back to the true people of God that he's going to bless and protect. And he says he'll save the tents of Judah first before Jerusalem. Now, what part of that area would have been most secure? City or countryside? Because the walls. What if you live in it? How secure is that? Not very. So God defends the weaker, feebler ones, the, one who, the ones who live in the tent out in the countryside before he rescues those in the city. None of God's people would be left out. None of them can boast over another. He said that that day he'll defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble will be like David. And David like God, like the angel of God. He's going to destroy all the nations that come against them. So God is going to bless his people. He's going to protect them. He's going to give them security. He's going to make them into something that those who come against them will wish they had. That's, that's what he's going to do. And he'll protect the weakest ones first. Comments and questions? Is, is there some significance with the repetition of in that day or on that day? Because um, in verse 7, it seems to be associated with salvation. Yes. Yeah. I think the in that day phrase is almost a technical term in the prophets for the day of Messiah. Yeah. Good, good, good observation. It's also in chapter 3 and chapter 9. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all over the prophets. Almost like the afterwards or the latter days is kind of a typical statement for the Messianic age. I, I'm just going to say we, we can see what Jesus was praying about when we talk about a cup of wrath. This cup, yes. that's what he said, uh, let this cup pass from me. And he was talking about the wrath of God. Exactly, yes. I think that's an important statement for a lot of people who don't believe anymore that Jesus experienced the punishment for our sins. But I think it's difficult to explain the concept of him drinking the cup if he wasn't actually receiving in himself the punishment that our sins deserve. That then becomes interesting that we drink the cup, which ought to be reminding us that he took our punishment in our place. Yeah, very good point. Other questions and comments? Yes, Jerry. The passage just always stands out to me with the siege, and you have a huge 
see so that all the nations are around it. Even, even ratchets it up with not only against Jerusalem, but against Judah. So you have this whole territory around everybody. So you have this huge amount of people coming here to lay siege against Jerusalem, but like you said, there's a reversal so that they're the ones that, that are defeated. Yeah, he gathers them all together. They thought to conquer Judah, but it's really to defeat them. Great point. Other thoughts? Ten to fourteen. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. This begins one of the richest passages in the prophets. This is really remarkable. It's kind of one of those things where you may not realize it when you first read it. But as you keep reading it and you add the next section to it, this is incredible stuff. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Now, is this the only passage that talks about God pouring his spirit out on? What, what else do you remember? Isaiah 44. Yes, Isaiah 44 is great. Joel 2. Joel 2. Ezekiel 36. Yes, in Ezekiel 39, Isaiah 32. This idea of in, in the time of Christ, God pours his spirit out upon his people is a key idea. You just got a lot of that in the prophets. The Ezekiel references talk about how he's going to give us a heart transplant and, and we're going to receive his spirit so that we walk in his ways and we obey him. It's a lot of things that we, we find. The New Testament uses that same uh, analogy as being fulfilled in Christ. You remember the use of the Joel passage, right, in Acts chapter 2, uh, that Peter says this is that. God pouring out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Um, Titus chapter 3 uses that. In Titus 3 and verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the first step here is God pouring out His Spirit. Um, you know, in one sense, you know, God had to make the first move. God poured out His Spirit uh, to, to bring us to Him. Uh, if he hadn't poured out his spirit and he hadn't done what he did to Jesus, there'd be no hope for salvation. 
You know, we didn't invent the plan of salvation, let's say. You know, God provides it for us. So he pours his spirit out, a spirit of grace and supplication. And what do we do in verse 10? What's the next thing we do? He's poured out the spirit. We look at Jesus, the one we fear. The one they fear. Well, we, the, they look at Jesus, the one they fear. Um, that's, that's the next step. We have to look at him. We have to turn to him. We have to, to trust him and seek him. So he pours his spirit out. And we look on the one. We know we pierced him. We know we heard him. We know our sins put him on the cross. But we look to him. And then what do we do? We mourn. And how much do we mourn? What do I says mourning is for an only child? That's true, but I don't think that's the point here. I, I don't know how many of you lost children. I have not, so I have a hard time understanding what emotions there must be in that. But I thought, you know, if you if you have ten children and you lose a child, it must be horrible. But can you imagine having only one, and the only one you have, you lose? If you have ten and you lose one, you grieve just as much, but you do have nine others that you can love and, and be comforted by and be strengthened in. If you have one, you lose the only one you have. Can you imagine just how, what a sense of loss, what a grief there is. Now I can't imagine much greater grief than the grief over an only son. Or he says here, mourning like the bitter weeping over our firstborn son. And we know there, there's a certain sense of priority of the firstborn son all throughout the Bible. For one thing, you've had it long. And uh, then he says, there'll be a great morning in Jerusalem like the morning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. Remember that, right? Now, that, that's a really cryptic reference. There's two possibilities. Maybe, since he mentioned the plain of Megiddo, it might be the morning over Josiah's death, who we read about even in Jeremiah 22, how they were mourning over him. That's a possibility. Some think that this is a pagan festival. And that he's not speaking of this approvingly, but he's saying they mourn as much as these weeping over the pagan fertility gods. I don't think it's impossible that he could use an analogy with a pagan uh, ritual. That, that bugs me a little bit, though. I don't see that done very often in the scriptures. So I'm a little more inclined to think he's talking about the mourning over Josiah. Either way, the point is... They're going to mourn so much. They're going to mourn as deeply and intensely as you can. Now, what does he emphasize in 12 to 14 about this mourning? Why does it matter? Usually it gets much more with kind of be comforted by that morning with somebody else, but if you're morning alone, it seems like it's Yes, good point. I also think that when you're by yourself in morning, 
you're really grieved yourself. You're not, this is not just mass psychology. You want people to start crying in here. But two or three people starting to cry. You know what's going to happen? Bunch of us are going to start crying. We may not even know why they're crying. But there's nothing that makes you want to cry more than seeing somebody cry. Isn't that crazy? But it's true. And uh, so this isn't that. This isn't some kind of mass psychology. This is their own intense personal grief. I believe grieving over our sins. When we look at the one we pierce, then we grieve. And it's in everybody. The house of David and his son Nathan. The house of Levi and his descendants, the Shimeites. You know, it's every family. Political leadership, religious leadership on down. Grieving their sins. Now, this is the gospel in the Old Testament. You know, God pours out his spirit. And they look on the one they pierced. And they mourn their sins. Go ahead and look at 13.1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Here's a, an artesian well that just, just bubbles over with, with, uh, with cleansing for sin. The central problem of the Bible is the problem of sin. No amount of weeping can cleanse that. Weeping is necessary, but weeping is not forgiveness. We need to come to the fountain God opens to be forgiven and pardoned of our sin. Isn't that exactly what Peter <laughs> preached on the day of Pentecost? You know, the Holy Spirit was poured out. He presented for them the Lord that they pierced to look upon. They grieved. They were convicted. He says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he's saying. Is the same steps you've got here. Spirit being poured out, looking for the one they bears, deep mourning, intense mourning, and coming to the fountain for the purification of sin and impurity. Isn't it amazing how clearly this process was presented? 500 years before Jesus ever came in, in, in Zechariah. Thoughts and comments? It's a cool passage and it'll make you think about our salvation and the things we need to do. Okay? Let's do one more section.